So as Wayne said, I have uh, been teaching the book of Job for about 15 years. Uh, I kind of, it was, a, I started this on a Sunday night series in our church. It was one of the most well-attended uh, things that we'd ever done on a Sunday night. And you could tell that you, once you talk about suffering and dealing with difficulty, pains, and trials, you never lack for an audience. And uh, when I was, when I, when I go over and teach this in the seminaries, uh, like in Serbia, Eastern Europe, uh, this is about a 20-hour course, and I'm going to reduce it down to four hours for you. So I, I had a lot, it was really stressful for me to try to figure out what not to say. That's really hard on pastors. If, you, if you're a preacher, you want to say everything. So I had to figure out what not to say. And uh, so I'm, it's kind of like this. When I, to get here from North Alabama, I was, on, I, you know, I was on the land in Huntsville. Then I flew over a big swath of country. And then I was on the land in Denver. Then I was on the land in Vancouver. Then I was on the land here. And now this is basically what we're going to do with the book of Job over the next uh, couple days. Uh, we're going to fly over big parts of it because there's no way can, we can read all of it. But we're going to land on several verses along the way that are key and strategic to give you a sense of what I want to talk to you about. So there are four main things that I'm going to talk about in each one of these sessions. Tonight's a lot of foundational work. Uh, it's a little tedious. Uh, that's why I've got this. I, it helps if I, I don't know about you, but I like, I like pictures and pictures help me a lot. And so I want to talk about, uh, this is kind of the fundamentals about where it fits in the Bible. Uh, you know, there's 66 books in the Bible, and Job is one of those 66 books. And it's one of the longest books in the Bible, and it's one of the most complicated books in the Bible for reasons that you're going to see in just a little bit. Probably most of you haven't spent a lot of time in your quiet time in the book of Job lately, uh, because it's, it's really difficult to grasp and, uh, and to understand. So this is, a, this is a chart. I want to show you structurally where it fits in uh, the Bible itself. And this is just a basic structure of the Bible. And so when I say five here, that means five books here, 12 books here. So if you start in Genesis and then you work your way through the books of the Bible, the way that they're, they're ordered in the scripture, you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the first five books of the Bible. And they're sometimes called the Pentateuch because these are all the, the books that were written by Moses. So that's the first five books. So after you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then you got Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. I'm not going to write all that down, right? You know how it goes. That's, that's a particular genre or type of literature in the Bible that we call history. So these are historical books. Now, I understand my friend Kurt Brannon was here last year. He did a walkthrough with you on the Old Testament. Uh, this is kind of another version of that. His is a lot more interesting than mine, uh, but this is more of a, a visual kind of thing. So these are historical books that are laid out basically chronologically. For instance, how does the first book of the Bible begin in Genesis chapter 1? In the beginning, right? So it starts in the beginning. That's a good place to start. So it starts in the beginning, and it works through centuries and generations of God dealing with his people. So that's history. All right, so you get all the way, you end, it, end this section with a, a book called Esther. That's the end of the historical books. And then this starts, and after Esther comes what? Does anyone know? What comes after Esther? Job, all right? So you got Job... Oops, this is a little shaky. Job, and then Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Now, all five of those books have something in common, too, and that's what we call poetry. This is one of the reasons why it's going to be difficult uh, for most of us as we read through Job, because it's, it's, it's a type of literature called poetry, so it's written poetically, not precisely. Right? There's poetic license here. There's going to be exaggeration. There's going to be hyperbole. And there's going to be figures of speech and metaphors and all that kind of thing. And so it's not necessarily a literal rendering of what happened, but it's going to be put in poetry. And I'll talk about why that's important in just a minute. So Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And then what comes after the Song of Solomon? Anybody know that one? Isaiah. All right, so you got Isaiah. And Isaiah, <laughs> sorry, I've got to hold on to this. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Five books, and, and, and then it gets into, after Daniel, you get into these other smaller books. This is called the prophets, okay? So now you have the prophets, and this is the type of literature called, literature called prophecy. 
And so these are the first five are big books. They're really, really big, and that's why they're major prophets. So these are the major prophets, and then the next 12 books are minor prophets because they're smaller. All right, that's basically what it is. Now, all these prophets are, doing, are ministering during certain times of this history, so you've got to be able to go back and plug this into where this, you know, where this history goes. All right, then, after you get through, this goes all the way through Malachi, and uh, that ends the Old Testament. So if you add all this up, you've got 5 and 12, and you got, so you got 17, and 17 is here, 34, that's 39. You've got 39 books. You've got 39 books in the Old Testament, and, and the way I remember this is, You've probably seen this before. You've got 39 books, and 3 times 9 equal 27 books over here in the New Testament. All right? So it goes like this. New Testament starts off with what book? Matthew. And you say, wait a minute, there's just four Gospels. Why do you have five there? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. After John comes the book of Acts. And the Gospels and the book of Acts, what they have in common is they're another kind of literature, another kind of literature that's just like this. Now you got history. This is New Testament history, and it starts with the birth of Jesus, and it moves historically. So it's chronological. For, in other words, Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. So if you read Luke and Acts together, you get all the history from the birth of Jesus all the way through... Uh, the, early, the, the early start of the church, the early church in the first century. So there's a lot of history there. And then after you uh, go through that history, after Acts, you, you begin with Romans, and you go all the way through these books. These are called the letters, sometimes called the epistles. And the first nine are written by Paul to churches. And then the next four are written by Paul to individuals. I'll just say people here. In other words, this one's written to the church at Rome or the church at Corinth or the church at Ephesus, but these four are written to people, specific people, like First and Second Timothy and Titus and Philemon. All right, you got four people there. And then these nine here are called the general epistles. So you got First, Second, and Third John, uh, Jude, uh, First and Second Peter, and all that. So those are general epistles. Now, I want you to see this because to see this in the structure of the whole Bible, Job fits here in what we call poetry. That's the structure of it. Now I want to talk about chronology. Uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. So this is, this is a history of the world from the beginning. And uh, Matthew chapter 1 gives us a, some key markers here. So this is the beginning of the New Testament. And in Matthew chapter 1, it starts off with a riveting section called a genealogy. How many of you ever just sat down and just read a genealogy and thought, well, that just really warmed my heart. I just want to, I'm going to memorize that. That's my memory verse for the, you know, for this uh, coming week. Uh, nobody memorizes the genealogies. In fact, the Reader's Digest uh, came out with a Bible years ago, probably 20, 30 years ago, and they thought they were being real smart. So what does Reader's Digest do? They give the condensed version. They took out all the genealogies out of the Bible. That's the, one of the things they did. Well, that's the most important part. People don't realize that the genealogies are there for a reason. Uh, for, for a number of reasons. One is to fix these things in real history. The Bible's not myths and fables. The Bible is, are real historic, real historic events that are described and written down for us for all eternity. And so you've got this genealogy. What Matthew's trying to do is show how Jesus has the perfect pedigree. He has the genealogy that makes him or gives him the right to the throne of David. He is the legal descendant of David, and therefore he is the legal heir to the throne of David, therefore he is the Messiah. That's, that's Matthew's whole point. That's why he starts off with the genealogy. What I want to show you is this. In, Je in Matthew chapter 1, after he goes through all these people, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so, he sums it all up if, in chapter 1, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, what Matthew just did for you there is you give, he gives you a structure for just a huge section of human history. So he says from Abraham first. This goes back to Genesis 12 and the Abrahamic covenant where God said to Abraham, I'm going to make, you a great, uh, I'm going to make your descendants great. I'm going to make you a great nation. And that great nation was called, I'll get, ask for a little feedback here, because I'm treating this like, a, I'm not really preaching, all right, I'm teaching. And so I'm going to have a little interaction with you. Uh, Matthew, uh, when he talks about the Abraham here in the Abrahamic covenant, 
When God says, I'm going to make you a great nation, what, what did that nation become? What's that nation? Israel. Israel. All right. Now, Israel, he says, through you, through this nation, I'm going to raise up and make you great. I'm going to bless the whole world. Now, how did God bless the whole world through the nation of Israel? A number of ways. But let me give you two, the two main ways. Number one is the scripture. The reason we have a Bible is because of the Jewish people. That's why we have a Bible. So God blesses the whole world, all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth are blessed. We're blessed today because through the Jews, through the nation of Israel, God gives us a scripture. The second way he blesses us is God gives us a savior. So he not only gives us a scripture, he gives us a savior. He not only gives us the word of God written, he gives us the word of God made flesh. He gives us Jesus who was a full-blooded Jew. That's why you got this genealogy here. So God blesses the whole world through this nation that God makes out of Abraham. That's Genesis 12 and the Abrahamic covenant. All right, but then he says, so here's the way I remember this. If you want to remember, I'm going to have to, I did something to my back, and so if I kneel down here and can't get back up, someone's going to have to help me, all right? But this is the way this works. I'm going to go low here. Ace, this is how, this is how I remember it. Has anyone preached to you like this before? <laughs> ACDC. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about the heavy metal band from the 1970s. Or alternating current or direct current. But this is the way you can remember it. You got AC, DC, BC, and JC. So you got the Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, is when God promises David, one of your descendants will be on the throne for all eternity. And who's that going to be? That's pointing to Jesus. Now, notice what's happening here. All of this is pointing toward, that will happen centuries later, it's all pointing toward Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Every single page of your Bible is about Jesus. If you ever wonder what the Bible is about, just open it up anywhere, it's about Jesus. All right? So this is all pointing toward Jesus. When you get to the Babylonian captivity, the reason they're deported to Babylon who, the nation of Israel, actually Judah, the southern kingdom, is because they disobeyed God. They'd gone away from God. They were, they were worshiping idols. And God kept sending prophets, you better straighten up. You better straighten up. Better straighten up. And they don't straighten up. So God spanks them. And he spanks them by letting the nation of Babylon, he raises up the nation of Babylon, and Babylon comes in and destroys Judah and lays siege to Jerusalem and destroys the temple it burns, they burn down the temple, they take away all the gold and silver out of the temple, and they take the choice young men out of, out of Jerusalem. And one of those young men is Daniel. The reason Daniel ends up where he does, serving in Nebuchadnezzar's court, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. That's the Babylonian captivity, and it's a huge event in the history of Israel. Then you've got J.C. So notice this. You've got, you've got history here like this, Abraham. Now, I've added two more here that Matthew doesn't because they're pretty obvious. We know this happened about 2000 B.C., David about 1000 B.C., Babylonian captivity, 586 B.C., and Jesus is born about 4 B.C., which sounds strange. Jesus was born four years before Christ. And uh, there's a long story there, but they got the timing off when they did the dating. And so we know Jesus was born, you know, around 4 B.C. Now, there's two more things I want to add here. Before Abraham, there was another event. I'm going to call this the creation. And notice this. That's a TC. TC, AC. Now, when did God create the heavens and the earth? On April 18th. <laughs> no, nobody knows, right? So I'm going to put this right here. Now, if anyone ever says, well, I know when he did, watch out. But this is not how history ends. It didn't hist it, history doesn't end with the birth of Jesus. How is history on this earth going to end the way we know it? Let's call that the SC. What's that? SC, SC is what? The second coming. When Jesus Christ comes again. This is the history of the world right there. And if you get those four main pegs historically, TC, AC, DC, BC, JC, SC, it's right there in Matthew. When, when is Jesus coming back again? I'm so glad nobody said anything. Because nobody knows, right? So now you got this here. And just like we don't know when God created the heavens and the earth, and we don't know when Jesus is coming back, 
We know all this other stuff that happened in between. And what does that have to do with Job? All right, I probably used all my time in the introduction. But what has to do with Job is when is Job, when is Job living? What period is he living in? And I'm going to tell you why I think Job is living right about in here. This is the age of the patriarchs, the patriarchs. Uh, this is before the kings, because the kings start right in here, right? Saul, David, Solomon. The judges are before the kings. The judges are right here, judges and then the kings. So before the judges and the kings were the patriarchs. And the patriarchs were men, the fathers of their family, and their family would get larger and larger, and they ruled over their families. And then the patriarchs would get together, and the fellow patriarchs would kind of, they would govern the nation that way. But it really wasn't a nation the way it would become under David. All right, why do we think that? Uh, so here's what, I, what I'd like to do. If you turn with me to the book of Job, in these pages that we have here, this, this, this introduction, let me just start with chapter 1, verse 1. Now, the, here's the thing. The first three chapters of Job are uh, basically what we call history or historical narrative. It's prose, and it's describing what happened. And once you get past chapter three, you move into poetry. And that's when they're going to start talking to each other in poetry, which is kind of weird. And so we'll, we'll, I'll tell you why I think that is in just a, a little bit. But here's the way it starts. Job chapter one, verse one. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man, and by the way, the land of Uz most likely is what we call modern-day Jordan, all right, if you go over the Mideast. And that man was blameless and upright. Now, it doesn't say he was sinless. It's clear in the book of Job he wasn't sinless. There's only one man who ever lived who was sinless. But blameless means that when he sinned, he knew what to do. When you sin, what do you do? What's, what's the proper response for a Christian who sins? You repent. So you, you sin, and then what does it say in 1 John 1, 9? You confess your sins to him. He's faithful and just to forgive your sins, cleanse you all of all unrighteousness. You turn around, you come back to God. To be blameless means that even, it doesn't mean that you never mess up. It means when you mess up, you soon come back to God and you do the right thing. If you have to make restitution to somebody, if you have to, whatever you do, you repent, you change. And, and so he was a blameless man in that there was no one on the earth who could say, Job, you've done me wrong and you haven't, you haven't confessed your sin. Or you owe me this or that. He was a blameless man. So he's a good man. He's upright. He, he didn't stray away from or deviate from God's law. He feared God. He turned away from evil. Fear means he revered God. And uh, that's a good thing. Fear is good. A fear of heights will keep you from falling off a cliff. Uh, fear of Dobermans will keep you from getting bit, right? So, so fear of God means you revere him. You're careful with him. Don't be careless with God. Uh, we, don't have, we have no right to just treat God any way we want to. No, he, he's to be feared and honored and revered. And he honors God. Verse 2, there were born to him seven sons, three daughters, and he possessed 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 female donkeys and very many servants so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. And his sons used to go, okay, let me stop there. This is one of the reasons that scholars believe he is living in the time of the patriarchs. Because once you get to the time of the kings, how do you measure wealth? You measure wealth by how much gold and silver you have. But in the time of the patriarchs, how do you measure wealth? Yeah, how many camels and donkeys you've got, right? By your livestock. It's your livestock that shows your wealth. That's, that's one of the reasons we think he was probably living during the time of the patriarchs. So, so verse 4, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they'd send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So they had this family reunion, big family dinner. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus Job did continually. Now, what this means is not that they're just, you know, just going crazy at their parties, but he says maybe just in case that happened. And what he's doing, he's fulfilling the role and the function of a priest. So he's, going, he's interceding for his children. He's going before the Lord for his children. He's offering sacrifices to God on behalf of others. That's the work of a priest. That's another reason why 
It's probably not during the times of David. It's not during the time. See, Moses is in here. It's not during the time of Moses because what happened under Moses? What was established? The priesthood. So the, the priesthood is established here. Before the priesthood is established by Moses, that's when Job, as a patriarch, as a leader of his family, the pastor of his family, the priest of his family, intercedes on behalf of his family. So that's another reason why we think it's during this time. And, and, and here's the thing. Job did this continually. And he, he's blessed by God, and he loves God. And, I mean, life is going great. Livestock, great. Wealth, great. Health, great. Prosperity, great. Everything's going great. But here's what happened. This is about to change. Verse 6. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Now, by the way, whenever God asks a question, he's not trying to get information. When God asks a question, he already knows the answer. When God says to Adam in the garden in Genesis, Adam, where are you? Is that because God's, oh, I have no idea where he is. No, whenever God asks a question, it's not to get information, it's to teach a lesson. So, so what he's doing here is he's drawing Satan into this, this conversation. And, and so there's, there seems to be, it's a little mysterious here, but there seems to be all the angels of God and the cherubs and the seraphim and all the creatures of God that are in heaven. Uh, there's this council that meets together and, and Satan somehow is permitted now to come before God and God asks him a question. By the way, God talks first. Satan just doesn't barge in and say what he wants. You don't talk to your talk to. And so he says, have you, he says, where have you come from? And the Lord said, and then he answered, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, blameless and upright man who fears God, turns away from evil. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? And, and you've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and you touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. And only God, only, only against him, do not stretch out your hand. So don't touch Job himself, but what he has you can touch. So Satan went out from, his pre from the presence of the Lord. And there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Satan and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkey feeding beside them, and the Sabians, that would be a, a people that, that lived uh, to the south of them, fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans, probably to the north, formed the three groups, made a raid on the camels and took them, and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And Job rose and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground, and he worshipped. Now, that's, that's amazing. He worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That song we just sang comes from that text. He gives and takes away. He gives and takes away. He gives and takes away. Blessed 
be the name of the Lord. And I don't know about you, but I find it easier to worship him and sing to him when he gives. And Job is a book in the Bible that focuses, focuses especially on what you do when he takes away. And what he has just done is he has taken away all of Job's wealth and all of Job's children. And Job does not curse God. He blesses God because he understands it's the Lord who gave those things to him in the first place. And the Lord who gives can take away. That is a hard, hard lesson. Um, I think, I, I can say this with a great deal of confidence, because in every group that I speak to, in every church that I go into, I am pretty safe to say that there are always, already three groups of people in that church. I think there are three groups of people in this church. There's a group of people in this church who, when you look back over your past, you can see times and seasons of great pain where the Lord has taken away from you. And it hurt. And then the second group are the people in a church where the Lord is presently taking something away from you. I mean, you're in it right now. You're going through it. And the third group is those who soon will experience loss. And the Lord's going to take something away from you. And Job is for all three groups. For the people who've been through it, for the people who are going through it now, and the people who are going to go through it sooner than you want. By the way, we never choose this. We would not choose this for ourselves. God chooses this for us. And, and this, is the, this is the great mystery uh, that Job is trying to, to really address here, is what we do with these things. So let, me, let me just kind of lay a little bit more groundwork here, and I want to get into some specific stuff. Notice the poetry. And you say, well, did it, does it, when, when they get into the poetry, they're going to, you know, Joe's going to talk to his friends. He's going to say something poetic. They're going to say something poetic. Is that the way, did they really talk in poetry to each other? The answer is no, they did not. But to, the poetry was a device used by Hebrew writers, Hebrew poetry, that helped them remember things. And so you could take real historical events and put them in poetic language to help you. For instance, in the United States, I'm sure Canada has some similar things, but in the United States, uh, American children often learn a poem, uh, Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere, who on the 18th of April in 75, hardly a man is still alive who remembers that fateful day or year. Derek, I'm sorry, this is bad memories for those, for those of you who are from England, but, but I just, you know, I, I never quoted that in front of somebody who's from England, but... But if you've ever been to Concord in Lexington, where, all, where this American Revolution started, uh, you know that that's where the great ride of Paul Revere was. And so it, this is real history. This actually did happen, but it's put in a poetic way. That's what happens in the Book of Job. I, that's, that's the poetry part. Another, another issue is the patriarchs, and we talked about that. Uh, the third thing is the problem of pain. All right, so in your, in your handout, question 10, um, this is what this is about. So it says, what is the problem of evil or the problem of suffering? This is sometimes called, uh, theologians call this a theodicy. And uh, so it has to do, uh, basically, literal theodicy means the righteousness of God. Is God right? How can God be right in a situation like this when there's been so much loss like this? Um, the challenge, answer, the challenge of answering the question, if God is good, then why am I suffering? That's that's really what we're talking about here. So here's, here's the problem. The Bible affirms these things about God. These things are of, about God are true. This is called theology proper, and there's some big words to learn here, but first is omniscient, and that means that God is smart. He knows all things. He knows everything. He knows everything that happened in the past. He knows everything that happens in the, in the present. So there's not a person here who can say, God didn't see what I did last night or the week before, or God doesn't see my pain or God doesn't see my sin. He knows. He presently right now knows what you're thinking. He knows the motives of your heart. 
He knows where you are. He knows where you, that's amazing. Every time I fly and travel like I have the last couple of days, I'm just amazed how big the world is, you know. I just fly all over, I fly over thousands and thousands and millions of people who don't even know I exist, right? And they're doing just fine, by the way. So, <laughs> so you know, God knows where everybody is. He knows where they are. He knows what they're doing. He knows you. He's intimately. Have you sung that song here, Brittany? He knows my name. You know what I'm talking about. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He hears me when I call. When you, we can all pray to God at the same time. He hears every prayer. All right. So he's he's omniscient. He knows everything. Did God know the day you're going to get born that you were going to be born? Yeah. Could you have been? Could you have been born a day earlier than the day God knew you are going to be born? A day later? No. You couldn't have been born a day earlier or a day later than the day God knew you were going to be born. Does God know the day you're going to die? Could you die one day earlier than the day God knows you're going to die? No. Could you die one day after the day God knows you're going to die? No. You're going to die on the day God knows you're going to die. Not a day earlier, not a day later. He's, he's omniscient. So, so he knows all things. He knows what's going on with Job. I mean, Job is not able to say, God, you don't know what's going on. He knows what's going on. All right, here's B. He's omnipotent. So God is strong, and he's able to do all that he wills to do. True or false? God can do anything. I tricked you. See, that phone means that's the alarm. I tricked you. I don't, I don't know what that phone means. <laughs> Okay, that was a trick question. I said, can God do anything? That's not true. There are some things God can't do. What's something God can't do? He can't sin. He can't lie. He can't cheat. He can't steal. He can't commit murder. Every life he takes is a justified homicide. God cannot be absurd. God can't be illogical. God can't make a stone so big he can't lift it. I mean, he's, that's, that's absurd. God's not going to, God cannot contradict himself. God can't be wrong. A lot of things God can't do. So here's what I'm, notice the way I said this. He's able to do all things he wills to do. So if he chooses to do it, there's nothing and no one who can stop him. Okay, that's what it means to be omnipotent or almighty. Omnibenevolent means that he's good. God is good in all that he does and all that he wills. And he is morally perfect. He does no wrong. He does no injustice. He loves his children with a perfect love. His grace is perfect. He's a God of grace and mercy and kindness and compassion and patience. One of the things I thank God most for over and over again in my prayers, I find myself, the older I get, saying, Lord, thank you for being so patient with me. Do you, do you ever pray that? I'm just, it's amazing how patient, how patient he is with me. I thought, I'm 62 now. I thought I'd be a lot farther along in my sanctification when I hit 62. <laughs> I thought I'd really be a lot, you know, a lot more like Jesus than I actually am. You know, I've had a long time to work at it, and I'm still so far behind. You ever, do you ever feel like that? That's God's patience. Why? The reason God didn't kill me a long time ago, right? That's patience. That's grace. That's mercy. He's, he's an omnibenevolent God. Omnipresent means he's present everywhere at all times. There's nowhere you can go where God is not going to be. I got a friend who just not long ago, and, and Wayne and Brittany know him. He, he does YouTube stuff. on. He's a YouTuber. And he just went with the United States Navy on a Navy nuclear sub underneath the polar ice cap. And guess who was there? God. And you can go to outer space, and God's going to be there. You can go to the Milky Way, and God's going to be there. So he's everywhere. He knows everything. He can do anything. He knows everything. And no one can stay his hand, and no one can thwart him. That's who God is. Now, that's a problem for a lot of people. Because if that's true, here's number two, but evil, pain, and suffering exist. Therefore, some people reason like this. Well, God is smart and strong, but he can't be good. He knew, I'm, he knew what this was going to happen to me. He knew the Sabians were going to kill all my livestock. He knew there was going to be a wind, come up and knock down a house and kill all my children but he, he, he could have done something about it because he's strong, but he didn't. So he can't be good. Or God is smart and good, but not strong. Right? So he knew it was going to happen. He wanted to do something about it, but he's so helpless. Poor God. He couldn't do anything about it because he's not strong. Or God is good, 
and strong, okay? He's good. He wants to do, he wants to prevent that, and he could do it. He just didn't know it was going to happen because God has to get up every morning and watch the weather channel to see what's going to happen. And you know that's wrong. God doesn't have to watch the weather channel. God is the weather channel. God controls the weather. He controls wind. He controls the path of tornadoes and hurricanes and storms and tsunamis. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist pastor. Yeah. Right, right. Because they want to escape. A lot of times people do that because they're trying to, if they believe in God, they're trying to get God off the hook. They, they think, oh, well, this wasn't. But in, in a lot of insurance, uh, in a lot of insurance policies, it used to, in the United States, it used to call those things a what? An act of God. That comes from a Judeo-Christian background right out of the book of Job. Because where did the wind come from? What did, what did Job say? Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Whose wind was it? It was the Lord's wind. Now, now you let that set on you a little bit. And you try to ponder these things, especially if you're going, especially if you just lost your children, right? And you think, well, wait a minute, God, you could have stopped it, but you didn't? Or, or, you, or you didn't know it was coming? Or, so, so what's going on? Or some people just conclude, uh, D, that God does not exist. So this is the problem of atheism. Let me just say this. You're going to run into people, if you share the gospel enough, you're going to run into people who don't believe in God. And one of the reasons, there, there are two main reasons that I run into why people don't believe the gospel. Uh, number two is Science. And they're, they're going to say, I can't believe the Bible because I'm a person of science. And I got an answer for that. That's a whole new, that's a different conference. The number one reason people find themselves rejecting God, they're going to give you is, I just can't believe in a God. When I look at, at the world and I look what's happening in Ukraine and, what, and when I see all the suffering and I see all the people that get home, I just can't believe that, that God exists. So they conclude, therefore, that God doesn't exist. And, and they say, well, Christianity has a problem. It's the problem of evil. If God is good, then why, why are so many bad things happening? And my response is, okay, can you name me one system of belief that doesn't have a problem of evil? Okay, Hinduism's got a problem, too. And so does Buddhism. And so does any polytheism. So does Judaism. And so does Islam. And so does atheism. That's a system of belief also. Atheism is, is uh, putting your faith in the fact that nothing times no one equals everything. And, and therefore, atheism, there is no God. And so I say to an atheist, well, why do you have a problem? You're using Christian categories to deny God. Because if there is no God, there's no good. If there's no good, there's no evil. If there's no evil, there's no problem. So what's the problem? And, and, and so here's the problem with if you're an atheist and you say there's no God. That means that all your trouble all your pain, all of your suffering has no purpose and your life is meaningless and your suffering is absurd. That, that's your only logical end if you're an atheist. Or, and this is, this is what Job is going to argue, and, and by the way, I hope to show this all the way through the Bible, that, that Job is, is going to show us that our pain has a purpose. This is why a good, loving, strong, powerful God permits it. So this is what, number three, the faulty premise assumed is an unwarranted assumption. Love insulates and isolates the beloved from pain and suffering because pain serves no purpose. Let me ask you, those of you who are parents, is this the way you parent? I love my children, therefore I'm going to protect them from all pain. Is that the way you operate? So if your children say on Monday morning, uh, I don't want to go to school. I, that, that would just be too inconvenient. I want to stay home all day and play video games. Do you say, okay, baby, if that's what you want to do, what do you do? What do, you do? If you're a parent, what do you do? You inflict pain on them. You're going to school. Get up. Get out of bed. Get dressed. Wash your face. Go to school. It's good for you. Pain. Take them to a doctor. Doctor says, well, they're due for this shot, this shot, that shot. 
and you say, you, your child says, I don't, I don't want to get a shot. So you say, okay, well, if you don't want to get a shot, I don't want you to have any pain in life. Is that what you do? And the answer is no. So, so what C.S. Lewis wrote in, in his classic book, The Problem of Pain, number four, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's how God gets our attention. Pain is good. You ever twist an ankle? I mean, what's, what happens when you roll an ankle and, and you sprain that ankle on the tendon? What's the first thing you do? You go down on the ground. You take all the weight off that leg. You go down on the ground in order to preserve that ankle. The pain is telling you, do not walk on that anymore. Get a doctor to look at that before you walk on it. Get some crutches. Heal that because the pain is telling you something. When I was 13 years old, I started getting pain in my side. And I remember it was a Saturday morning for some reason. I know, I know it was a Saturday because uh, my parents had planned to go. We we're all going to go to a furniture, furniture store and look for some furniture for our house, which when you're a 13-year-old boy, that's the last thing you want to do on a Saturday. But that's what we we're going to do. So we got up, and, and I said, my, my side hurts. And my dad said to my mom, just give him some eggs. He'll be fine. And uh, I don't know. That's a dad thing to say, right? Yeah, just eat something. You'll feel better. So, uh, so I, gave me, I ate my scrambled eggs and all this kind of stuff. So we go to the, the furniture store, and I'm not feeling good at all. And sometimes when you're really hurting, you just kind of have to groan. It just felt better to go, uh, you know how that just kind of relieves it a little bit? And then my dad's thinking, oh, he's making all this stuff up. He's fine. Uh, just stay in the car. We're going to go look at the furniture. So I'm <laughs> my dad and I grew up together. So my... <laughs> I'm, I'm in the car, and uh, I'm in the car all by myself, laying on the back seat of the car. Uh, finally, my mom said to my dad, there's something wrong with it. He doesn't usually do this. So they take me to the emergency room of the local hospital, and we go into the ER room, and uh, I'm just going, uh, and then, I'm sorry, this is not real, this is kind of gross, but it's, it's, it's Saturday night, not Sunday, but I... <laughs> I put those eggs on the floor of the emergency room, all right? And here's what I found out. If you do that in the emergency room, you go right to the front of the line. <laughs> so I go to the front of the line, and they take me back into the, the room to examine me. I'm laying down on the table, and the doctor puts his finger, his fingers right here, and he pokes down, and he lets it go, and he says, did that hurt? And I said, yes, it hurt. Don't do that anymore. He said, that hurts right there? So you know what I, you know what's wrong? I had, a, I had an appendix that was about to rupture. And they rushed me back into surgery, and they got that thing out of there just in time. In fact, they, I remember still coming out of the surgery as a 13-year-old boy. They handed me the appendix in a little bag. I got to hold it for, I don't know whatever happened to that thing, but they took it out. And, and I'll, I will tell you this right now. Pain saved my life. It saved my life. And I would never choose it, and I would never want it, but to automatically think that pain is unloving is not to think this all the way through. What C.S. Lewis is saying is pain has a purpose. It is God's megaphone to the world, and it gets our attention. And, and so this is what happens with Job, and this is, this is why this is going to be more really important. I knew this was going to happen. I got like a minute to do this, so <laughs> chapter 2, chapter 2, verse... I can go a few more minutes? Okay, well, Brittany said I could. So, so let me finish chapter 2 here. This won't take long. Again, there was a day. This is verse 1. So now he's lost everything, right? He's lost all his possessions. He's lost his family. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered, the Lord, and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. Now, what he means here is, you let me take away his stuff, but you didn't let me touch his skin. 
you let me touch his children's skin, and they're dead. But you didn't let me touch Job's skin, and Job loves his own skin so much that he was willing to give up his children's skin for his own skin. That's why he says skin for skin. So skin for skin, he says, if you let me touch his skin, that is his physical body, his health, he says, verse 5, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone in his flesh, and he'll curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores and from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Now, he's sitting in ashes. Where are the ashes? Outside of the city gates is where they took all the trash. And they would burn the garbage and the trash outside of the city gates. So you got an ash hill there. Because Job has been struck with these sores, and when someone got this kind of skin disease, guess what? Quarantine, baby. <laughs> and it, went, it was more than 14 days. And you want to talk about pandemic? You know, this is the way they treated people who got this kind of stuff. You got to go outside of the city, and you sit in the ashes of the city dump, and he's sitting there with pieces of, of pottery scraping the sores off of his skin, and, and he he's takes this potter and he's sitting in the ashes. In verse 9, his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Thank you, dear. That's really supportive. And I get this. Now think about this for a second. What's she telling him to do? Do what Satan wants you to do. Satan wants you to curse God. And so she becomes, she doesn't even know it. She becomes an instrument of Satan. His own wife saying to him, just die. Just curse God, be done with it. He's going to kill you, and it's all over. And remember what Jesus said to Peter when Peter said, oh, you know, Jesus said, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die on the cross. And Peter says, oh, no, Lord, that's not going to happen to you. Remember what he said to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Because that's what Satan wanted him to do. Satan wanted Jesus to avoid the cross too, right? And so Job's own wife now turns against him and says, just go ahead and do what Satan wants you to do. Just go ahead and curse God and die. And here's how Job responds. This is amazing. He says in verse 10, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Receive good from God. People in, in, in the United States, especially in the southern United States, is a big deal. How you doing today? Oh, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. Did they say that here? Good. I hope you all don't start that. <laughs> it's just so, you know, cliche. Uh, because everything's going right, right? But what he's saying is, but, but just like we receive the good gifts from God, when he gives, when he takes it away, that's from God too. And he's got his own purposes. And he doesn't, at this point, it's really obvious, he does not explain to Job what's going on. Job has no idea what's going on. And you might be in that situation too. You have no idea what's going on, right? Uh, that's, that's, what, that's what Job does for us uh, over and over again. So there are two tests that you see here. The two tests are, first of all, prosperity. Prosperity is a test. When God gives you good things, and your life is going well, and you got your health and your wealth, and, and you say, oh, okay, God, this is great. You know, like right now, I'm in a really good season. I, get, I feel good. My health's good. And I got these beautiful grandchildren that this is why Brittany's parents are so jealous of me because I, I go to church, and I see my grandchildren. I get to, my grandchildren go to my church, right? Every, every Sunday, I get a hug from my grandkids. And uh, I just feel so blessed. I really, really do. I, I feel happy. I got plenty to eat. I really got, I got a nice house. I got a truck. It's got air conditioning. I mean, who has air conditioning? You think most of the world in, in history never had. I'm just, I live like a king. Um, I'm, I'm amazed at how God has just given me so much. Um, 
And so we should be grateful for those things and enjoy them. There's nothing wrong with enjoying them. If you got those things, enjoy them. Prosperity is a test, though. I see prosperity in where we live in our part of the world, and I see it here, by the way. When I flew into this town, there's some money in this town. And here's the problem with prosperity. It tends to make you proud. It tends to make you self-sufficient. It tends to make you think, look what I've accomplished. Look what I've done for myself. Look how hard I worked. And I, I tell people in our church who are wealthy, I said, you know what? I've been to third world countries and I've seen people work a lot harder than you do and they'll never have nearly as much. You just happen to live in the United States of America. And you just happen to live in, the British, live in British Columbia, you know? So, so we get proud. That's a tendency to get proud. It's like I heard about this uh, woodpecker in the woods. That's a good segue, wasn't it? And, uh, and, they, and what do woodpeckers do in the woods? Well, they peck wood. So the woodpecker was way up in this tree and he's pecking on this wood, wood tree. Most trees are wood. <laughs> He's, he's pecking. This is what I really miss about Brittany and my daughter being in our church because they always laughed at my stuff. That was uh, I could always count on. So the, the, the woodpecker's up there pecking on this tree, and uh, all of a sudden he, he's, he's so busy pecking on this tree, he doesn't realize this, this uh, storm cloud moves up into the valley, moves right over the tree, bolt of lightning comes out of the cloud, hits the top of the tree, splits the tree right down the middle, and it blows the woodpecker off the tree. He's now unconscious. He falls to the ground. He's laying there with his wings spread out on the ground, the rain begins to come down, and the rain falls down on his little woodpecker beak, and it wakes him up, and he shakes his head, and he stands up, and he looks at this half of the tree and this half of the tree, and he puffs out his chest, and he said, wow, look what I've done, right? <laughs> and he didn't do anything. He, but that's, that's what we do. That's what we do when we receive the good gifts of God. There, people in my community call, who call themselves Christians may not go to church for weeks at a time, because on Sunday morning, they're too busy playing with the toys that they can afford because God blessed them. I don't need God. I got money. I got prosperity. The first test that Job has is prosperity, and he passes it. God gave him all this stuff, and what does it say? He was blameless. First test passed. What's the second test? Adversity. The first test is when God gives to you. And the second test is when he takes it away. And the second test, he passes initially. And he says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he doesn't know what God's doing, but he's going he's to be constantly going back to God and say, God, I do, not, I do not understand, but I trust you. I trust you. And there are, yeah, I'm going to, no, yeah, I need to stop. Let's pick this up tomorrow. Is that good enough? Yeah. All right, I'm going to pray for us. Father, we thank you that uh, in your wisdom, you give us your word. You planted right in the middle of the Bible, it seems like this book called Job. It's this mysterious book that's so hard to understand at times, and I pray that you'd open it up to us, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide. And that you would draw us closer to you now in Jesus' name.